Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, the news headlines are full this morning of reasons to call us to pray, right? And that's true every morning. Every morning, the news headlines are full of evidence of why we don't just need God, which is sort of obvious in every moment of every day, um, but why we need God to intervene right now in terms of the concerns of our particular communities and nation. And so uh, let us be a people of prayer today. I know there is um, a desire and a tendency for us to speak loudly, um, particularly when we see things happening as are happening in the city of Seattle. Um, I I recognize that. Um, I I do not think that the way things are being handled there is appropriate. Um, And we're going to, um, on Monday, let me go ahead and tell you, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Patrick Oliver. He's the director of criminal justice uh, at Cedarville University. We're going to talk to him on Monday uh, about what's going on, not only in Seattle, but in cities across our country. He, um, he's got a long storied career in law enforcement. He is an African-American. Uh, he has served as a chief of police. He now serves um, in advisory capacities for chiefs of police, not only here in the, in the United States, but around the world. And so we're going to talk with him about policing. We're going to have a wide-ranging conversation um, about that. Uh, in the meantime, let, let's pray. Let's be praying for the restoration of peace, particularly in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of of Seattle. I refuse to call it by its uh, provocative name, which you're going to see is hashtag C-H-A-Z, hashtag CHAZ. Um, that stands for Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. I'm, I'm going to refuse to use that language um, because I think that cedes credibility to what's uh, going on, frankly, by people who are in the best term that, that I have for it is, is anarchists. So we're going to pay attention to what's happening in places like Seattle. Um, we're going to pray for people who are seeking to uh, live and work peaceably in the midst of an American city, which has now been uh, at least a portion of which ceded by the government, uh, by the local government, uh, over to uh, anarchists. That is, uh, Forbes magazine is calling that this morning a harbinger of what is ahead for American cities. I'm not trying to be a fear monger. I'm trying to be um, very sober about what's happening in our country today. Um, We're going to talk with Matt Hawkins about the way we have to face our past, we can't just move forward from the place uh, we find ourselves until we actually reckon with the past which lies behind us. He and I are going to look at a statement by J.D. Greer, um, who is currently the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and we're going to talk about dealing with our past. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
Joining me now, Matthew Hawkins. He's the former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, I just describe him now as a public theologian as he is pursuing uh, his Ph.D. You can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, Carmen. Uh, what a morning for my walk-in music called Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. That's kind of what we're feeling this mercy. week, aren't we? Yeah, we need God's <laughs> mercy. There's just no question about it. I, you know, every direction you turn, something's on fire. So, um, and not just here, around the globe. Um, I mean, I yeah. heard one commentator describe events uh, around the globe this way: the sun literally now never sets on protest movements related to uh, liberty and justice. That is a that that is a significant reality for those of us who are pro liberty and pro justice yeah. and 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 pro those things for everyone. Um, yeah. So, yeah, let's um, if we can, because you understand the Southern Baptist Convention um, in ways that those of us who have not worked <laughs> formally for an agency of the Southern Baptist Convention, sure. maybe uh, the, I'm, I'm hoping that your willingness to talk about these things this morning will, um, first of all, uh, help us acknowledge the truth of what is being said about the past and the present yeah. and the relationship of the two. Um, but sure, also, um, I have at least one listener who, um, anytime I platform someone who is an official representative of the SBC and some part of it, um, she lashes out that that does not represent her. So, um, and, sure. and her kind and her variety of Southern Baptist. So can we just spend sure. one minute sort of talking about uh <laughs> the Southern Baptist Convention, and that whoever I platform related to it does not represent every voice within it. Of course, yeah. So the convention, uh, the shorthand, and we could go down a long rabbit, troll, uh, rabbit hole that uh, you don't have time for on your radio program, but the short of it is that the Southern Baptist Convention is a, a collective, um, like it's a network of like 48,000 churches. Uh, it's the largest network, uh, largest convention. Um, some we sometimes we refer, refer to it as a denomination. Technically, that's not uh, accurate. Um, largest uh, convention of churches in North America. Uh, it had it's uh, you know over 150 years old. Um, and uh, every church, is the, the one of the unique Baptist um, identifiers is that every church is local and autonomous. Uh, and so in, in addition to believing in adult believers' baptism, every local church is autonomous. So that's why you get remarks from uh, from listeners like you that say, well, that's not my, I, you know, I'm a Southern Baptist, but that's not what I believe or that's what, not what I support. Uh, because we recognize uh, local churches uh, think differently um, and we have united together to accomplish mainly uh, – Sending missionaries, planting churches, um, and educating pastors and raising up pastors. Um, that's kind of the thrust of what uh, the convention exists to do. And I worked for a small agency within the Southern Baptist that uh, basically is tasked with speaking uh, on behalf of Southern Baptists where they're on issues of consensus and then also speaking prophetically um, when the time comes to Southern Baptists on moral, ethical, um, social issues from a biblical perspective. Does that help at all? Um, and then yeah, no, the, that's uh, super helpful. Well, it's part, like my disclaimer at the beginning. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so we, you know, we speak on issues of consensus uh, when we're speaking formally, recognizing that if we were to wait for unanimity, we would be mute. And so, uh, so uh, Southern Baptist, uh, you know, the, the old joke that you went to a hockey game and a and a Baptist meeting broke out. Um, 
is reflective of some some of the drama within the convention sometimes. And so one of those uh, unique things about the convention is technically as a convention, we only exist legally as an entity for two days out of the year. It's when we meet uh, at the annual meeting and uh, make decisions collectively. Uh, now, that's collectively because churches have uh, – SBC churches are able to send messengers, what we call messengers, basically delegates, uh, to participate in the meeting. But only those who show up get to participate. And so um, the churches who don't send members don't get to participate. Uh, so that's a key factor too. So um, we're always always encouraging um, participation in those annual meetings. Um, and it's the largest um, – uh, Robert's Rules of Order, uh, for people who are aware of that, the SBC, I think at some point, maybe not now immediately, has been uh, traditionally like the largest uh, body in the world that runs its meetings uh, by Robert's Rules of Order, which brings us to this gavel. Uh, J.D. Greer has been president of the SBC. Uh, that's a temporary um uh, that's a temporary term, typically one year, and most people serve a maximum of two years. Uh, J.D. Greer is going to get a third because of the pandemic, and our annual meeting was canceled for the first time since um, uh, World War II. But he's recognizing that there's this historic, some people call it a relic. Um, I, I wouldn't use it in uh, theological terms as a relic, uh, but there's this gavel that uh, traditionally Southern Baptists have used since the beginning to gavel in, gavel out of, of these formal meetings. Uh, the problem is, uh, and the issue that J.D. is recognizing, and he's going to discontinue using this particular gavel, is that it was owned by John A. Broadus, who was a pastor around the time of the Confederacy, who himself was a Confederate and a slaveholder. And I think this kind of brings into really acute relief um, that William Faulkner quote that I learned from Richard Land, the past is never dead. It's not even past. So here you have J.D. Greer, who, like me, is a Gen X uh, guy in the 21st century, and we're gaveling in to a convention meeting with the gavel that was owned by a slaveholder. And I think that's one glimpse, a small, small glimpse into what for evang white evangelicals who don't really get this quote unquote systemic racism, that's just a small sample of, of I think, what, you know, they see um, that so, is blissful. A, so lot, Matt, a lot of white evangelicals. Well, yeah, go ahead. Well, we're going to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, sure. we're going we're gonna to come back with the audio of J.D. Greer um, making this statement, and then we'll continue this sure. conversation. Um, the past isn't really, uh, isn't really past. We'll be right back. Right. You hear J.D. Greer every single day at noon here across the Faith Radio Network as the host of Summit Life. He's also the pastor uh, of a church. He is also currently serving as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He had these words to share uh, about Southern Baptists and dealing with the past. We realize um, that especially in a moment like this one, we need our brothers and sisters of color. We need the wisdom and leadership that God has written into their community. We know that many in our country, particularly our brothers and sisters of color right now, are hurting. Southern Baptists, we need to, to say it clearly as a gospel issue. Black lives matter. Of course black lives matter. Our, our black brothers and sisters are made in the image of God. Black lives matter because Jesus died for them. 
black lives are a beautiful part of God's creation and they make up an essential and beautiful part of his body. And we would be poorer as a people without um, them and, and other minorities in our midst. Let me echo my, my, my friend Jimmy Scroggins, um, pastor down in, in Florida, in saying that Black Lives Matter is an important thing to say right now because we are seeing in our country the evidence of specific injustices that many of our black brothers and sisters and friends have been telling us about for years. And, and, and by the way, let's not respond by, by saying, oh, well, all lives matter. Of course all lives matter. But I've heard it described this way. Say you're in a group or with a group at a restaurant, and, and the waiter brings the food to, to everybody except for one guy at your table, your friend Bob. And so you say to the waiter, hey, excuse me, Bob deserves food. And somebody at your table corrects you to say, no, 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 all of us deserve food. Well, that's true, but you're missing the point. Bob is sitting there by himself without food. And so we are saying we understand that, 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 uh, that, that many of our black brothers and sisters have perceived for many years um, that the processes, the due processes of justice have, have not worked for them as they have for some others in our country. And by the way, like Jimmy, uh, like Dr. Scroggins says, let's spare each other the quotation of stats right now. You know, if you talk to some black friends, you'll know that they can tell you about their experiences and how some of them can be quite different from, from others in our country. We want um, rights and privileges to be extended to everybody. Okay, so the day after uh, J.D. Greer made that statement, uh, he then went on to say, Southern Baptist, I think it's time to retire the broadest gavel. The gavel was first used by the Southern Baptist Convention officials in 1872. Um, I am talking with Matthew Hawkins um, just about this sensitive period through which we're living, in which we're living, and how, as Christians, uh, we we respond. So, um, uh, no, not everyone... Um, here's words the same way. Not everyone sees right. symbols the same way. Um, you know, let's just continue this conversation about how, you know, the past is not only prelude to the present. Yeah. The past is not always totally past. No, no, you're right. And especially with a historic institution like the Southern Baptist Convention, which let's remember was literally founded uh, at, at the crux of uh, the conflict over American slavery. Um, it was founded as a convention that was defending um, slaveholding rights for Christian missionaries. That's that's our past. Um, and frankly, it follows all the way up through um, resisting integration um, in, in the middle of 21st, uh, 20th century. Um, you know, Carmen, I, I believe that uh, people are redeemable. Um, that's what our gospel tells us. Um, and I think in, our institutions are redeemable also. Um, but especially... Uh, for a convention, an institution like ours, um, shaking loose uh, the residue of that racist past doesn't just happen. Like we have to actively do that. Um, to give you one other example of uh, the, the black uh, uh, Christian experience within the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, you talk to some of my black uh, brothers and sisters who go through uh, seminaries, um, and I don't believe our seminaries. Uh, you know, have racist people uh, leading them at all. And yet a black Christian could go through 90 academic hours of coursework for a master of divinity, the MDiv. That's the classic one you get to be a pastor and not, they, they could go through all that coursework and not find one black theologian on a syllabus. And that's a problem. Um, it's not reflective of, like J.D. Greer said, um, full participation of our bl- brothers and sisters um, of color. Um, and that, that takes some intentionality uh, and some action to correct that. Um, and so not only 
you have black Christians not being exposed to black theologians. You don't have white Christians being exposed to black theologians. Um, and we believe that the body of Christ is made richer for that uh, experience. Um, on the Black Lives Matter thing, look, I uh, know that's that's a triggering phrase for a lot of people. Uh, the more I reflect on it, um, uh, you know, our, our problem as white evangelicals or conservatives isn't so much isn't that we didn't jump on board uh, the Black Lives Matter organization uh, that does that does dabble, which in I do not support. Pre- pre- and my guess sure, is sure, you sure. do not either. Yeah, no, no. Um, but I think in greater reflection, our our. Our, our problem isn't that we didn't jump on to support that organization, but we just stopped and criticized that wing of the organization. We didn't mm-hmm. advance our own initiative that echoes the same lowercase <laughs> phrase, if mm-hmm. you will, black lives do matter. Um, mm-hmm. That's been absent. That's what we should have been doing all along. Uh, whether or not the Black Lives Matter organization harmonizes completely with us or not, um, the point is we sat and did nothing. And I think what you see now um, from J.D. Greer and others is that uh, we're recognizing we need to be more active in uh, recognizing uh, and extending what I just call Christian empathy. I think that's what I don't see a lot of right now is empathy for our black brothers and sisters who are hurting. Um, and those kind of, these kinds of experiences um, – uh, you know, to a person, uh, when I talk to Af- African-American brothers and sisters, uh, is pretty frequent. They've, they, they've had a different American experience than I have had as a white, um, as a white male in America. Um, and you can call it whatever you want. Um, but the fact that, uh, we, you know, pledge allegiance to justice and liberty for all, um, is, is pretty stark when we discover all the people who are not receiving, um, e- equal treatment. Uh, in our culture. Yeah, not experiencing, not experiencing the same thing. Hey, we got a listener yeah. who's saying, hey, tell Matt he is spot on. So there you go, man. You are spot uh, on. Thanks. We appreciate on. you thank joining you. us. We're going to leave it. Uh, we got to leave it right there. Um, Matthew Hawkins, thank you so much. You guys can find Matt online at MatthewTHawkins.com. We'll be right back. So you may not have thought of yourself as a Christian entrepreneur, but my guess is you have a dream and you'd like some help bringing that dream into a functional plan and then how to execute that plan and then how to actually grow your idea into something that not only serves you but serves others. Brock Shinen is an attorney. He's also a strategy consultant. He's a Christian. He has written a book that is very concise and is super duper practical. It's called The Christian Entrepreneur. Brock Shinen uh, will offer his insights next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. is still a preteen, get ready, because in just a little while, he'll try to test your limits in every possible way. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. All sweet, docile children eventually turn into these scary things called teens. So parents need to start preparing now by outlining a belief system for their family. 
I'm talking about a set of convictions, boundaries, rules, and consequences that govern the discipline in your home. So let me encourage you to write down some of your own personal beliefs. Think about why they're so important to you. Pretty soon, you'll be on your way to creating an effective belief system for your family. And you'll define your limits before your team begins to test them. Establishing your family's belief system today can help prevent chaos tomorrow. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Brock Shinen. He is the author of The Christian Entrepreneur. Brock is a lawyer, a speaker. He's the founder of the law office of Brock Shinen, Inc., which represents some of the largest churches in America. Uh, He draws on his work as a legal expert and a business coach in the new book, The Christian Entrepreneur. Brock, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. So happy to be here. So I am curious to know uh, how your conversations with some of the churches with whom you work, how have those conversations changed in the past few months? They've changed pretty significantly towards pivoting, where before it was kind of, Brock, how do we just do things right? And now all of a sudden you get you get these conversations that shift to, Brock, how do we pivot properly? What do we need to be thinking about? Where do we need to be looking? Um, and that's so more than anything, I really do think it's about the pivots right now. And when I guess when I think of the word pivot, you know, we're pivoting from something to something else or we're learning to, um, you know, put the weight on a different foot. Maybe yeah. we're turning away from some things more intentionally toward others. What are the pivots from and what are they toward? In a sense, I think the pivots are from a place of of this, you know, a stability maybe where churches, businesses, people in general, I think, felt a general sense of stability, whatever that looked like. Right. Then all of a sudden it feels like, hey, there's a period of time where things don't feel so stable. We don't know what the future looks like. So churches had to adapt. Let's let's look at something, you know, very specific as an example. Churches were used to people showing up in droves, or most of them, right, showing up in droves on, on the weekends. And all of a sudden, they hear these rules that, well, people can't show up. So what do we do? We close our doors, and our option is to shift online. And as we shift online, we now have a different way of connecting with people. And it's not just about, hey, can we get online? We, you know, it's, it's relatively easy these days, get a camera up, you know, we, we stream our service. Well, we don't know how to stream. Well, hey, just do a Facebook Live, do a YouTube Live, do it, you know, Instagram Live. So a lot of the tools were already in place. So it wasn't so much that churches started to struggle with technology necessarily. They started to struggle with what does that new church look like? Like, how are we engaging with people? What are going to be the consequences of engaging with people online, which it's like a wave that just dropped on everybody. And then as we get into it, you know, you start going days and then weeks and then months. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, what is this going to look like next year? <laughs> what is this going to look like five years from now? Have we changed the face of church completely? So I think, you know, to kind of circle back to the question, in one sense, it's shifting from a general sense of stability, whatever that was, into this fast-paced, unknown, 
we had we have to reconnect with people differently and then all of a sudden waking up to this new reality and saying wait a second what is this new reality going to do for our entire future does that make sense it does um i think that as you're talking i'm thinking to myself sort of over the course of christian history and you know we had house churches and then we had church in the catacombs and then we had cathedral churches then we had community churches, sort of churches dispersed in all kinds of places and locations. We then had the house church movement again, sort of come back around. Um, right. Christians around the world do not gather in the same ways in which we gather here. And so I do think that part of what I'm observing is the North American church, the American church, becoming a little bit more of a student of how it's done other places by other Christians mm. who cannot gather as freely and easily as we are used to gathering. So I just think that's been an interesting part of the conversation as well. It is. I, I In fact, I just had a conversation yesterday with a pastor who planted a church um, earlier this year and was saying essentially the same thing. We've gone full circle to where we're really looking at community, like in-home churches, what it, what it feels like, where we can't gather in mass. And that seems to be the next iteration of church right now. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. Okay, so what conversations are you having with business leaders? I mean, The Christian Entrepreneur is really not a book uh, about churches. It's really a book about all of us who function out here in the world um, where we're making something, we're doing something, we're selling something. Um, what are the conversations that you've been having with business leaders in this particular season? Yeah, I think business leaders, the the conversation shifted to when it feels like there's a giant earthquake and a tsunami and a, you know, all of just catastrophe happening, how can you still make smart decisions? You know, so it's like the Christian entrepreneur tells us how to make some really good decisions and how to really think about your idea. And is it a good one? And so I'm getting these calls from business leaders and saying, Brock, you know, this is, this is too simple. We didn't, we didn't talk about what do we do when the world's shaking, when the world's on fire, when all this kind of stuff is happening. And so the conversations really turn to, okay, what happens when I'm actually told I can't do business? What do I do? What if I'm told I can't do business a certain way? What if my business requires me to do business a certain way and I can't? And so instantly my conversations with these people turn into, wait, you're focused on what you can't do instead of what you can do. How can you adjust? And, and I, you know, earlier mentioned pivots, you know, saying, how can you pivot? And so my conversations with business leaders got a lot more specific and a lot more pragmatic and kind of pulled out of, this isn't theoretical. This isn't academic anymore. We're not talking about, you know, vetting ideas and getting things on paper. We're talking about you're in the middle of chaos and, and so you're going to have to make some very quick, fast-paced decisions that are very pragmatic. How do I keep dollars rolling in right now? We literally had the entire faucet shut off. How do I keep dollars rolling in? Well, again, everybody thought, well, we'll just shift online. But here's an interesting thing, you know, and I'll, I'll point this out as a great example. When we shift online, the assumption is whatever our customer base was just kind of shows up. Where are they showing up? To our website, to our social media pages, to our YouTube pages, that sort of thing. But the reality is many businesses had absolutely no way of connecting with their customers 
before this, other than those people kind of showing up in their stores, showing, you know, calling, um, let's call that sort of analog ways of connecting. You know, basically, if if they showed up and we smiled and shook hands and said, hey, what 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 can I help you with? Right. And then when our doors were shut and we had to switch online, we said, oh, we're all our customers. And we never thought about how did we actually connect with them in the first place? And I think, you know, as an example, one, what, one of the things this does is it highlights the fact that, you know, we get so used to connecting through social media. What if social media was shut off tomorrow? What if we couldn't just post on Facebook and know that people were going to show up? You know, this is one of the reasons why digital marketers would tell you, actually, a lot of people will tell you, don't ever stop building your email list. Because your email list, in theory, is the only thing that you own and control. You know, we if we would have thought, hey, there's no way Facebook could be shut off tomorrow, so I don't have to worry. I'll always have a way of connecting with my customers because of Facebook. Did we ever think our physical stores would be shut off? No. So, so why would we think it's not possible that Facebook would be shut off? So when you think about it, how would you connect with your customers if everything shut down? If you had a really great email list, if you had a very strong connection with your customers through email, again, unless the entire internet infrastructure shut down, which is even more unlikely, um, just just because of the the uh, difficulty of shutting it down, and there's there's a lot of reasons, but you know you would lose all of your ways to connect with customers if you didn't have an email list, if social media was shut down. So I think this highlighted the fact that, wow, you know whatever we thought would exist regardless of what's happening in the world, all of a sudden we have to shift the way that we think about it and say, you know, the, all of the ways we communicate with our customers and connect with our customers could be shut off tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So do we have multiple ways? Do we, are we building ways that we control and we own? And email is one of those as an example. I'm talking with Brock Shinen. Uh, he is the author of The Christian Entrepreneur. When we come back, I'm going to ask Brock to walk us through just these really four stages of The Christian Entrepreneur, because I think it's just helpful to begin to unpack those. Everyone that I know is rethinking everything right now. I even have a friend who, you know, the dad's thinking about taking a gap year. This is a good time to consider those dreams and clarify them and see whether or not you want to turn them into a business. That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe... Continuing my conversation now with Brock Shinen. You can find him at brockshinen.com. The book is The Christian Entrepreneur. Brock, so I have a friend. He is He's been in the business that he's in as an employee as long as I've known him. And, you know, now we're in our early 50s. I would say that, you know, he's he has maxed out probably in the company of which he is a part. And he's been at home. Uh, his college age kids have been at home. There's conversation about a gap year for them. And so it led me knowing that he has been, I don't know, somewhat sad for a couple of years in terms of where he's at professionally, it led me to just say, well, how about you? Can the dad in this family take a gap year? They're actually now talking about it. Talk with us about the pause that's required, the intentional pause that's required to start this process, and then give us the four stages of starting and running a business as a Christian entrepreneur. Sure. So I think the, the pause that's required is taking an inventory of your life and saying, is this where I want to be? And if it is, doubling down. And if it's not, saying, okay, if I'm going to make changes, I have to actually, 
you know, put both hands on the plow and not look back. Because what you see in life is that all these people that have, uh, you know, nine to five jobs and what we call a side hustle, right? A lot of times those people with the side hustle, not all of them, but many of them are struggling in the home. They're struggling with happiness. They're having, you know, midlife crisis and, you know, different things. And the reason why is because their focus is split. Their heart is split. They know that they're meant for something more. They're meant for something better. And yet they want the stability. They need the stability for their families. And it's all understandable, but it creates a, a split in their heart where what they're doing every day is not what they want to do, but then what they do on the side is what they want to do, but it can't pay the bills. And so there's this constant tension that they create. So I think part of the pause is pulling the, you, you know, your head out of the space that says, I can only exist with the stability of a nine to five job. I can't sacrifice and saying, look, well, if I can't, then I'm going to stop thinking about this quote side hustle. But if you're really unhappy with what you're doing and you know you're meant for something different, you know you're meant to start a business and run your thing, then really what it requires is saying, I need to make the leap. So instead of having a side hustle, it turns into a plan of escape, right? It turns into how will I make the plan to transition from this perceived stability into a time period of building something that will uh, yield stability, but just not in the in, in the immediate, right? So it's it's a shift between the mental, you know, like perspective of side hustle to, no, this is a plan to to transition, and then as you commit to that plan, now it's the four steps that we talk about, which is you know starts with dream. Okay, I I have this dream to do this thing, to build this thing. It's inside of me. Well, what is it? Is it a good one? Have I articulated that dream? Is there a need for the dream? You know, if I said today, I really want to start a business making music CDs. Is that a good dream? I mean, I'll tell you, we came out of an era of people buying CDs and there's these huge profit margins and, you know, artists and record labels are making millions and millions of dollars because of the profit margin. No one wants to go back to that. So, you know, especially as we switch to digital and streaming, there's more opportunities for more access to all kinds of different content. So the idea of shifting to a physical CD uh, business may be a really bad idea right now because it's not, there's nothing vintage about it, right? It doesn't sound like a, an old vinyl album being played uh, where we can hear the cracks and creases um, and it gives it character. So we start with, you know, looking at that dream. Is it a good one? Are there reasons to do it, not to do it? Is there a market for it? And we really vet that idea or that dream. Then we switch into, okay, so we feel like it's a, it's a great dream to have. Um, what about the plan? Do we have a practical plan? You know, we're not going to go after these uh, 50, 60, 70 page business plans that no one understands and take tens of thousands of dollars. We're going to go after the real heart of what is this going to take to fly? You know, how much money to start it? How much money to operate it to sustainability? How much do we need to spend? Where are we going to get our money? Who's going to do what? You know, we're just asking some very, very basic practical questions. And that becomes the plan. We put that on paper and we know there's a lot of research out there. You know, when you put a plan on paper, you're exponentially more likely to achieve that plan. And a lot of business people, you know, starting businesses, they, they dream it in their head, they plan it in their head, and then they execute on confusion. So with a written plan, very simple, very to, you know, my language, 
I can now execute on that, which literally walks us into the next stage, which is execute. And I can look at the plan that I laid out and I can say, okay, day one is, is I'm going to go ask somebody for money or I'm going to create a product or I'm going to articulate a service or I'm going to just hang my shingle, whatever that looks like. Day one is the execution or stage three of this is the execution of that plan that's been vetted, which is based on a dream that's been vetted. So you could see that each piece sort of builds on the other. And, and then as you execute, you realize, okay, we've got there's a semblance of stability that happens as we start to make good decisions, which leads us into the growth stage. And the growth could be, you know, after six months, it could be after one year, it could be after five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and so on. Because the growth phase is really about wherever you are saying, how do I go? How do I increase? How do I increase sales? How do I increase exposure? And I've had business leaders, you know, now that the, the book's been out, I've had business leaders come and say, you know what, Brock, I feel like this was kind of for, you know, the person that's never done anything and the newbie, they don't necessarily know what they're doing. And I say, okay, take a step back. Where's your business hurting? Well, we got all these problems. You know, where's the opportunity for growth? Well, you know, we, we'd like to do this, but we'd like to do that. And I say, exactly. So what you realize is that you don't know how to do it because you haven't dreamed a solution. You know, these, these business leaders that have had successful businesses for, you know, 10 years, 20 years, decades, they start to look at their business as, hey, I've hit a mark where now it's just about growth. I no longer need to worry about dreaming and planning and executing. And I say, that's funny because if you look at the most successful businesses in the world right now, they continue to dream they continue to execute a uh, plan. They continue to execute. They, they will systematically go through all four life cycles throughout their business all the time. But when a business believes, no, we're just in the growth stage. We don't need to think about dreaming and planning and executing. You've killed your future. You're no longer adapting to the future. And so I think that's just another aspect of the conversation that comes into focus is that if you stop reinventing yourself, if you stop reinventing your business, um, that's when you know you're probably killing your business. So though, that's that's kind of how the book is is weaving into these conversations, too, that I'm having with business people. That's Brock Shine, and we're going to have to leave it right there. The book is The Christian Entrepreneur. You can find Brock online at brockshinen.com. What a delight, man. Thanks so much. Thank you, Carmen. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. So I get up in the morning and I survey the headlines of the day and then I look at what we have planned and I think to myself, oh, what if I had like three minutes to talk about the baby store that's reopened? Okay. And you're saying to yourself, what? Yes. Okay. So the economy globally, you know, you know, this has been shut down in the Ukraine. Uh, it, part of that has been the closure of, of international borders, right? For periods of time because of COVID-19. Um, and so the baby store was closed in the Ukraine. And you say to yourself, what in the world is that? Well, um, I know this is going to be shocking to some people, but you can actually buy a baby. Uh, there's an international market. It's called international surrogacy. And um, so there were 11 foreign couples who had bought a baby in the Ukraine through surrogacy. Um, and yet they couldn't go pick up their baby because uh, of the border being closed. 
And so, you know, babies come um, when they're due. They don't uh, they don't wait around for international uh, challenges to change or be lifted. And so uh, there were for several weeks more than 100 foreign genetic parents. I'm going to just read the lead here. Um, This is in The New York Times. For weeks, more than 100 foreign genetic parents of babies born to surrogate mothers in the Ukraine have been waiting nervously, prevented by Ukraine's rigid coronavirus restrictions from entering the country to pick up their newborns. Now, if that does not sound like the commodification of children, um, commercial surrogacy is exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like going to the baby store. Um, And when we talk about the way... Genetic engineering and IVF work. Um, I mean, you should be very, very aware that um, the the child that comes into the world is uh, chosen in very, very specific ways for very specific reasons. Babies are great. I love babies. Please, please don't hear this as anti-baby. Please hear this as a serious consideration that each and every one of us needs to make in terms of the ethics of life. Um, What are your ethics when it comes to commercial surrogacy and the commodification of children? Um, The the conversation that you could have today about this is related to a headline in The New York Times related to the reopening of the baby store and international surrogacy opportunities. Um, You and I need to think about seriously the cultural considerations of the day, because as Christians, we need to bring the gospel to bear on these issues, on these issues, as well as every other issue uh, that stands before us. All right, we got a whole other hour. Up next, stay with me right here. Adam Holtz will be here in just a moment. We're going to talk about some media headlines. That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.